Hey, I think I'm on. I was supposed to, I think, sing the little jingle this morning, but just not going to happen. Hey, good morning, church. Welcome to Austin Oaks. We're glad you're here this morning. Uh, before we jump in, we're in a series called Church for Monday. And if you're new with us, this series is really about how we as Christians take our Sunday faith and make it real in our Monday through Saturday life. And at this part of the series, we're talking about this concept of seeking the good of the city, or giving ourselves away. And it's just appropriate that this message and this kind of topic lands on a Sunday like this because it's Veterans Weekend, as you know. And so I just want to take a moment to honor those who have, in many ways, given their lives away for the sake of our country and for the sake of others. So if you would do this, if you have served in any of the wars or served in any of the services, or if you're a, a direct family member of someone who's been part of the service, would you just stand up so we can just thank you and acknowledge you this morning? We do really appreciate your service and, and the many privileges it gives us in our country because of people that uh, have given themselves for that. As Jesus said, uh, no greater love is there than this, that one would lay down his life for his friends. And, and the military service really can epitomize that in many ways because they can often be in harm's way uh, in order to protect others of us who benefit from it. So we thank you today as we recognize that. Today, uh, as we continue, I, I'm... I kind of got a, a, a difficult passage this morning. Difficult in the sense that uh, everyone knows it. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. I'm just going to let the cat out of the bag. The parable of the Good Samaritan, it's probably the most well-known uh, passage in the Bible or the concept in the Bible. You don't even have to be a Christian and people have heard, oh, be a Good Samaritan or, or understand that concept. But what I hope to do today is give you some fresh eyes to look at it. Because I think of often how we uh, think of this passage or the truth that it teaches is it's just about showing kindness. Go and show kindness to others. That's kind of what a good Samaritan is, someone who shows great kindness to someone else. But that's not uh, really the whole heart of what this passage is about. It's so much more powerful than just that. We've maybe minimized its impact because we've taken it out of the context in which Jesus taught it. So today I want to help us see why understanding the heart of this parable and even what Jesus was doing it when he told it is at the heart of us being a people who will give ourselves away. Who will give ourselves away in a costly way, not just in a kind way. Because kindness costs you a little bit, but what Jesus was teaching in the parable of the Good Samaritan will cost you infinitely. And until we understand the dynamic of what Jesus was teaching, we'll never be a people who truly give ourselves away for the sake of others. So if you have your Bible with you, uh, open it up to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan starts in verse 25 and runs through verse 37, or at least the interaction that he has with this other person uh, is within that context. And here's the three things I want you to see today. Here's the three questions that I think this interaction, the whole thing, not just the parable, answers uh, for all of us. And what we get got to answer as well is what hinders mercy in my life? What hinders mercy? Why do I struggle to show mercy 
to other people. And, and in particular, here's what we often do. To struggle to show mercy to people who don't deserve it. Which is a little bit of an ironic statement because mercy is something that's not deserved. But yet, we often struggle to show it. The second thing is, we're going to see in here is what empowers mercy then? So why do I struggle or what keeps us from showing mercy? What hinders it? But what empowers mercy? And then lastly, how can I be a person that shows mercy? How can I go and show this mercy to others? How can I give myself away as a Christian in a way that has eternal impact? So starting in Luke chapter 10, verse 25, we're going to jump into the story. See what this has to say. It says, Then an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Now let me explain this a little bit because this is obviously a uh, context of Middle Eastern culture and Jesus culture. And when we see an expert in the law, we think of a lawyer that we see on commercials all the time and they're trying to get your business and they work with civil law or American or, or national laws here. But that's not what an expert in the law was in Jesus' time. See, that he's talking in a Jewish context and the Jewish law came out of the Old Testament so if you were a, an expert in the law, you were an expert in Jewish law. So a modern equivalent, if you were to think of it, a modern equivalent of that whenever you see a lawyer would be, say, a professional theologian. Okay, someone who is all about studying the scriptures and understanding that. That's really a better way to read it today as we look at it. So someone who knows the Bible very well uh, asks them this question. And he says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? If you don't pause and think about that question for a moment, you're going to miss the whole rest of this story. Because that question in itself is very strange. Think about it. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Let me put it this way. Let's, let's say you go out this week and you go, you know what, this is a week, I, I want to inherit something this week. So, so what, what would you do if you were heading out this week to, to, to figure out how you could inherit something? What can you do to inherit something? There's really no answer, is there? You, you just have to be born into a certain family, right? You can't, you can't I mean, you could say, whoa, that, that family there, they, they, you know, I kind of like to inherit what they got. And you just go up to them and say, hey, what do I need to do to inherit? Your, I mean, that would be a little bit odd to do that, wouldn't it? Because it's impossible. You can't do something to inherit something. You have to be part of the family. So his question in and of itself is so important to understand why is this person asking this question? It gets you into the mindset of how they thought about eternal life. And what Jesus does so well, if you've read the Gospels or studied his life at all, one of the things that Jesus is a master at is when, when he gets questions like this, like it says here to test him, when he gets questions that are just a little bit off or a person that's coming with a false motive, he's really good at, at asking a question and responding with a question. Can, now let me just give you, this is just a, a secondary nugget, okay? This is, this, there's the Bible here. This is just wisdom from your pastor this morning. Guys, I'm going to tell you something right now. Don't use this trick on your wife, okay? They do not like it. It drives my wife nuts when she asks me a question and I respond with a question. This drives, in, in fact, I know, this wife here is saying, Dan, that's the best thing, honey, we can go right now. We're, we got everything we needed today. 
And it's even worse when I respond with, but, but honey, that's what Jesus does. I just want to be more like Jesus. <laughs> yeah, so file that away in, in things not to do in your life. But this is what Jesus does. If you read his life, he does this all the time. And it's, honestly, it's a great tactic when it's used properly. In fact, we would be better as Christians if when people came to us and asked us questions, they had different ideas than we have. If instead of waxing eloquently about what we believe and kind of force it down their throats, if we didn't ask a thoughtful question to help them better understand what they believe and what the ultimate outcome of that belief will be. And that's what Jesus does here. He asks this question to get to the heart of this man's question. So he says this, he says, what is written in the law? I mean, this guy was an expert in the law. It's beautiful. So Jesus says, let me step into your world then and just tell me what you believe. Tell me what's written and let's, let's start from there. He says, how do you read it? And he answered, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So he quotes two key passages in the Old Testament from Deuteronomy and from Leviticus, parts of the law. And, and, and ones that even Jesus had said, if you summarize the heart of the law, all these truths, they really boil down to these two things. How do we love God and how do we love others? And Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. In a sense, he's saying, just, just do that. Just do that and you'll, you'll have the eternal life that you want. And this is where we just kind of keep moving on into the story. And we don't stop and let that simple truth hit us a little bit. I mean, just ponder, what would it mean for you and I? If, if this is how we inherit eternal life, this is what this man said, he was an expert, Jesus responded, you got it, go and do it. There it is right there in just a handful of verses. I've just told you how you can have eternal life. Jesus has told you how you can have eternal life but we don't stop enough to think about the implications of it. Ponder for a moment what your life would look like if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Every moment of the day. If every thought, every word, every desire, every action that you performed was first and foremost shaped by your love and desire to please God. God. Let me get a little more practical. If every time you receive some money, maybe it was a lump sum or, or a gift or, or a paycheck or whatever, if, if this was true of you, you would say, you grab this and you say, God, I love you so much. You, you are the most important person in my life. There's nothing else that's more important to me than you. What do you want me to do with this money? Before I think of anything that I want, I love you more than anything else. I love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. What do you want me to do with this money that you've given me? Or before you go and make a purchase, you would stop and say, man, Lord, is this purchase, does it reflect my incredible and primary and supreme love for you? Or let me put it in a relational context. How many of us are, are so much more concerned, more than anything else, of what God thinks about us compared to what others do. 
Because if that's the case, if, if, if God is first and foremost, if we supremely love him and, and are pursuing him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength like this, then you know what? We would be the least offendable person in the world. Because if God's opinion of us was first and foremost, we wouldn't be so thrown out of whack when someone else's opinion wasn't quite as great. Are you with me on this? You just, now we're, we're, just, we're just scratching the surface of this in terms of all the ways we could apply this. And Jesus, the other part of it is, is go and love your neighbor as yourself. So think about that one. Think about loving your neighbor as yourself. Here's how you could put that. If, if you loved your neighbor as yourself, that means that when they had a need, you would go after meeting their needs with the same joy, the same strength, the same strategy, the same effort, that you would go after meeting your own needs. That's what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. That means when you wake up on Monday, probably the first thought out of your mind would be, man, you know, my boss, I just, I love him so much. I, I want, what can I do this Monday to make his job easier? He's got a lot on his shoulders, and I just want to make sure everything that I do, I got to think about this, I'm going to spend time on it, I'm going to ask him, I'm going to ask others. I want to make sure that I try to meet his need in this company as much as I'm going to try to meet my own. Or you might be saying something like this, because maybe that's a little bit strange for you, but you go, man, my coworker, man, they, they, they're there early, they leave late, they are constantly doing everything they can for the company. I want to make sure that they're acknowledged for the hard work they're doing, that he gets the raise or she gets the raise that she deserves every bit as much as, as I'm trying to position myself for that next promotion. Anyone ruled out yet? It's pretty crazy when you just think about this basic truth. And it's the heart that sets up this whole story. And, and, and my first point really doesn't even answer our questions. It just sets up the context. And that's this. Eternal life requires an impossible standard. Eternal life requires an impossible standard. There's nothing you can do to inherit it. Now you could do this, I mean that is the standard, but who, who does this? Who has done it? It's impossible. In fact, here's how, uh, how uh, amazingly we fall short of this. You know, I mean, you guys know this, I'm stating the obvious, but I'm a pastor, and for 16 years I've spent my life uh, helping people understand who God is and helping them love Him more, helping them see God's love for them and helping them love others. That's what I, kind of what I do. And so as I'm preparing a message like this, I'm, I'm doing this. I'm saying, hey, how can I help people love you, God? How can I help them love others? And you know what? One of the things you struggle with as a pastor over and over again as you're doing God's work is I wonder what people are going to think of my message this Sunday. Which the underlying question is really, I wonder what they're going to think about me. Guess who I'm loving the most in that moment? Right in the midst of doing God's work, right? I realize my own failure to measure up to the standard. It's absolutely impossible. And until we get this, we'll never understand the point of this parable. And it's why Jesus was asking these questions. So the story goes on. And I love in verse 29 what happens because it just... 
You know, it just reminds us that every time you read the Bible, the Bible reads you. Verse 29 says, but wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He wants to justify himself. And, and that's our nature. My nature is to justify my actions or justify myself so that I deserve eternal life. If I can justify myself, then I can feel I deserve it. Right? Just try this at, at home. The same thing happens at home. Try, try this, guys. Husbands, here's another great tip for you. I'm giving you two of them. This is like a great Sunday for you. First one is don't answer questions with a question. The second one is if your wife comes up to you and confronts you about something you've done wrong, try justifying yourself. See how that works for you. Yeah, but honey, yeah, but just start with those words. Or instead just say, you know what? This is what we normally do as husbands, right? You're so right, honey. I mean, you're always right. Every time you come to me, you, you correct me. I mean, you see my faults and you got it. If you, if you said that, how many of us do that? Yeah, no one raised their hands over there in any of the other services as well, so you guys are doing good. We don't do that, do we? That's not our nature. Our nature is to self-justify. That's exactly what this guy was doing, which is why Jesus was asking these questions. Our nature is to justify ourselves so we deserve eternal life. But the nature of the gospel is that I must be justified by someone else. Let me say that again. The nature of the gospel is that I must be justified by someone else. And here's the dam to mercy. Here's what prevents me from being a person that shows mercy. Until I can get past self-justifying myself, I will never be a person that shows the kind of extravagant mercy that this story talks about. The longer you wrestle in your head with how much you deserve eternal life, the less you'll ever be able to offer it and share it with someone who desperately needs it. Until mercy overcomes your justifications, you'll never be a person who's able to show mercy. And that's what Jesus is drilling into in the story. So here he goes into the story. Jesus answers this, who's my neighbor? And he answers it by showing the extent or the extreme of what neighborly love looks like. So Jesus takes up the question and says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him, and fled, leaving him half dead. So I have a, a picture here. If you are in Jerusalem and taking the road down to Jericho, it's about a 17, 18 mile journey. And it's on treacherous type of terrain like this, you know, through these huge valleys and, and bluffs going up. And there's all kinds of caves, kind of like the one you can see a little bit to the left there. And so this area, you are very isolated. There's lots of spots for robbers to hang out and hide. And so it was very commonly known as a spot where just this kind of thing would happen. It's kind of like being in the bad part of town. So this man's walking in that part of town and they, these robbers come upon him, beat him and leave him half dead. And then it says a priest happened to be going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, as Jesus brings these characters out, remember this isn't a true story, it's a story about truth. Jesus is making up a story to communicate a powerful truth. 
So you have to ask yourself, why did Jesus pick these particular characters? And someone in that context would have immediately picked up on it, especially an expert in the law. So if a priest is walking down from Jerusalem to Jericho, most likely he just finished fulfilling his priestly roles in Jerusalem at the temple. Okay, he just got done with maybe a few weeks of Sundays, and now he's on his Monday heading back home. And a priest was the top of the food chain in the religious circles back then. They were pretty well-to-do. He probably wasn't by himself, probably had a, a group of people and, and plenty of resources with them. They, just, they were very financially well-off in that day, not for good reasons. But he was the elite of the elite when it came to religious privileges. And he comes by and he passes right on by. So Jesus says the most significant religious type person of that day comes by and, and walks right past this man. Then he says, in the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So then Jesus drops down probably one tear from the priest. The priests were part of the fa family of Aaron. And Aaron was one branch within the Levite family. And all the priests and the people that served in the temple came from the Levite family tribe of Israel. Okay, so the priests were a branch, a unique branch within it. The next group was the Levites. They were kind of your assistant priests, so they were right there doing all kinds of religious duties as well, probably coming from the same situation. So these are the people that are all about doing God's work, and they'd had a whole bunch of Sundays where they'd done that, and now they're heading home on Monday, and he walks right by. So in your mind, you're going, okay, top of the food chain in a Jewish religion is the priest, next is the Levite, what would you think would come next? Just a regular Jewish person, right? Not in any priestly, but part, still part of God's people, at least physically. That's not where Jesus goes. Jesus then goes, says, but a Samaritan on his journey came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. He had compassion. So Samaritans, now this doesn't hit us a whole lot. We just think, oh, it's another person coming by. So I need to help you understand why this is so significant in the story. A little, little history background. The Samaritans and the Jews were huge rivalries. They hated each other. For generations, this had gone on. And it was for both ethnic and religious reasons. I mean, just like it is today. A lot of animosities in our days are ethnically related or they're religiously related. So Jesus picks out here a story that says, I'm putting people who are oftentimes on opposite spectrums together to show you what true neighborly love looks like. And for the Samaritans, they were half Jewish and half, say, Assyrian or, or some other foreign nation. Because when the northern part of Israel, or Ju of Israel was conquered by the Assyrians, they wiped out and took away a lot of the people. And they would often, when they'd conquer it that day, they'd leave the poorest of the poor people in the land because they didn't have much power to kind of take it over. And then a lot of them would come and move in and live in that area. So you have all these foreign Assyrians living in northern Jerusalem or northern Israel with poor Jewish people living there, and what ended up happening, probably for survival reasons, those poor Jewish people began intermarrying with the Samaritan or the uh, Assyrians, and that's where this Samaritan group came from. And what happened over many years is when those Samaritans that were half Jew and half Assyrian would want to come down and worship in Jerusalem or in the southern kingdom where the temple was, the pure Jews said, heck no, we're not letting you guys into our temple. 
We're not letting you worship here. And there is this animosity before him. So what the Samaritans did is they said, we'll set up our own temple then up here and we'll kind of create our own worship so we have a place to worship. And it was slightly off, slightly different, didn't use the whole of the Old Testament like the, the Jewish people did. And so now you have this ongoing rivalry. They hated each other, absolutely despised each other. And unlike Western culture that's very individualistic, like we tend to have personal grudges, most nations and most places, other places are more communal in their grudges. Right? They hold it against the whole group of people. So you put those tensions in there as well, and you have a whole different scenario. So I'm trying to, as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, you know, God, how do I, how do I help people understand the, the boundary that this guy is crossing to show mercy? And here's all I could come up with. Imagine if Donald Trump said, you know what, I'm going to head to California and do everything I can to campaign for Nancy Pelosi so she can receive her House seat the next time it comes up for election. Okay, let me flip that. Or, or it'd be like Nancy Pelosi saying, you know what, I don't want to see this impeachment stuff against Trump. I'm going to gather a team of my Democratic leaders and we're going to fight and do everything we can to stop this impeachment process from coming against Donald Trump. How, how many of you think that there's a possibility that that could happen this week? <laughs> it's impossible, isn't it? But could I just... And even if you can't fully feel it, I want you to feel it. Can I just help you understand the animosity between these groups is way longer and way broader than even the animosity between those two parties in our political system. Jesus is telling a story basically saying, this is absolutely impossible. What would it take for one of them to do that. Something would have to happen. Something would have to empower a mercy that's so unexplainable that it'll cross a boundary that seems impossible to cross in our worlds. And that's exactly what Jesus does. And he, he puts him in the story and it says he comes, he sees him, he has compassion on him. And it says he went over to him and bandaged his wounds pouring on olive oil and wine, which would have been kind of their medicinal uh, materials at that time, very expensive. He would have been carrying those with him. So he went through great expense just to initially care for this person. But then, even risking himself, being there to take care of him, the man's half dead, so he hasn't died yet. The robbers probably aren't that far away if this guy's still alive. He's risking himself just stopping on this road to take care of him. But he not only does that, he picks him up and carries him in to the next town. It says, the next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. A couple denarii would have covered probably a month or two's worth of housing for him. So not a small chunk of change. Think of putting up someone today in a hotel for a month or two. You'd probably do that for like your in-laws when they came into town. You're welcome to get them out of the hotel, right? But would you do that for your greatest enemy? Would you show that kind of hospitality? And not only that, he said, if you need more when I come back, put it on my tab. He gives them a blank check to the innkeeper to make sure this man is taken care of. And then Jesus asks the question, which of these three do you think proved 
to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robber. And look at what he says. What would we all say? We'd say the Samaritan, wouldn't we? Because we don't have that kind of animosity towards it. We haven't had that. But we probably have some people in our lives that just saying their name maybe makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up a little bit or just causes a little bit of indigestion. So oftentimes we just speak in generalities, don't we? Just like this guy. Well, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus told him, go and do the same. You see, many of us would willingly make great sacrifices for a spouse, for an immediate family member or a friend. And those are all important. The Bible tells us we should love our family members in sacrificial ways. But that's not what this story is about at all. This story is a story of such extravagant mercy that when you pause to truly understand it, you can't help but just shake your head and say, there's no way. There's absolutely no way I could do that. You might say, well, well some people do that. There, there are people who have done, I've, I've read stories that are kind of like this. Absolutely, there are some people who have maybe done this once in their life. There may be some people even for seasons are, are acting in some ways like this. But how many of us have done it every moment and every day of our lives? How many of us have met that standard in everything that we do? I'll tell you one thing, we, we have been successful. I would say you all have. We've all been very successful in doing this in one unique situation. That we've gotten and given every bit of energy we have, every resource, every thought, every strategy to, to meet this need, and that person is ourselves. Like when we have an issue and we have a concern, we have a health or whatever it might be, we will go to whatever extreme it takes to make sure that our needs are met. So yes, we know how to do this. We just know how to do it really well with ourselves. And Jesus is showing us that it has to go much broader than that. You see, Jesus' answer to this person's question was ultimately pointing him to the reality that his life, his actions, his religious duties had fallen far, far short of the standard of inheriting eternal life. That he'd have to find a different way. That's what Jesus was pointing him to. He would have to find a different way to enter into this eternal life than doing what he thought would earn him, would justify himself. And here's what's ironic about it, is even though the gospel isn't clearly illuminated and, and spelled out in the Old Testament like it is in the New Testament, it's clearly illustrated 
and communicated in many ways through it. And in fact, especially for a priest, think about what they would do. The law was never intended, even for those in the Old Testament, to be the means by which they earned their salvation. The law, even the Bible tells us, is simply there to reveal our brokenness, to reveal the holiness of God and how broken we are as humans. And even within the law, a priest in particular should know this because every time a law was broken, a sacrifice was offered. See, the law was not to make us perfect. The law was to point us towards who is perfect. It's like a tutor to remind us of our brokenness and our need for justification. And here's this priest that in his duties of however many weeks he was in the temple, do you know what he would have done over and over again? He would have offered a sacrifice on behalf of someone coming, not only the nation, but even individuals coming who had broken the law, who recognized that they had broken the law and were coming seeking mercy. And you know what the provision of the law was for mercy? Someone else being sacrificed for your sake. An innocent animal, an unblemished animal. And this priest over and over again would have recognized, should have recognized the only way someone can be made right and forgiven before God is through God's gracious provision of a merciful sacrifice. And even after him doing that, day after day after day for all these days, he was able to walk away the next day and walk right past someone who needed the same kind of costly infinite mercy that he had needed even to do his job. But here's the difference. This good Samaritan is certainly an amazing character. He risked his life. He sacrificed incredibly to help this man out. But, but Jesus did something so much greater than this. We are blown away just by the mercy this man shown, but Jesus is really pointing to us to a, a greater and truer good Samaritan. Because Jesus didn't just risk his life when he saw you and I beaten and broken on the side of the road. He didn't just risk his life. He gave his life. Jesus knew the moment he took on that calling to be our Savior, that it wasn't a chance. There wasn't a 50-50 chance that it would cost him his life when he came down. It was 100%. And it wasn't just going to be some wine and some oil and a few denarii that it would cost to raise us because we weren't half dead like this guy was. We were completely dead. The Bible says that all of us are dead in our trespasses and sins, that we were enemies of God. And yet he bridged a gap of infinite mercy to take our place. He didn't just pick us up. And in essence, what happened in the gospel is Jesus came down, we're dead on the side of the road, and he says, I'm going to switch places with you. I'll be beaten so that you can be raised. I'll become poor. I'll give all my resources in this time. I'll lay it all down. I'll become poor when I've been the richest. He was the richest man to ever walk this earth. You ever think of that? And yet he lived in poverty so that you and I could experience the riches of his eternal life. Jesus became that Samaritan for you and for me. 
in order to melt our self-justifying ways and help us cross barriers that we would never cross if left to ourselves. See, here's what's interesting about eternal life. Here's what separates those who receive eternal life and those who don't. Unless God overcomes your self-justification with His mercy, you'll never inherit eternal life. That's what's odd about the Gospel. It's what's odd about eternal life. Those who think they deserve it, they don't get it. And those who don't think they deserve it, they're the ones that get it. So can I get just personal for a little bit? Because here's what I think we miss in these stories sometimes. Jesus was talking to a, a religious leader. This guy had been in church their church, probably every single day the doors were open. Just like maybe some of us have. And yet he was so close to church, but he was so far from God. He'd missed the whole point, just this weekend. And Jesus' questions weren't to push him away from himself. They were to draw him in. Jesus is saying, you just got to lay down your justifications. You got to lay down the fact that you think you deserve it. Because not only will that keep you out of heaven, will that keep you out of the presence of the Lord, it'll never allow you to show the kind of mercy and love I want you to show to others. Because you'll always have justifications for why they don't deserve mercy from you. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you've been in church your whole life. Maybe you have often thought, I'm not that bad person. I'm one, I, would, I, I put myself in the, this story as one of the good guys. I'm probably that good Samaritan. And maybe today you've realized, whew, it's a bigger standard than I realize. You see, you and I are in this story. But we're on the side of the road. And until you recognize that, until you welcome that, you will never receive the infinite boundary-breaking mercy that Jesus has shown you and I in salvation. Some of you are here and you're maybe on the other end of the spectrum. And you're maybe crawled in here, you came in late and thinking, man, I haven't, I haven't darkened the doors of a church for a long time. I'm a little nervous. I, I'm not quite like these people look so put together on the outside. Let me just tell you, we're not nearly as put together as you think probably worse than you think. And you're thinking, I certainly don't deserve eternal life. I just want you to know you're closer to eternal life than the one who thinks they deserve it. Because knowing you don't deserve it means you're willing to welcome a mercy that is so undeserved. And all you got to do is say, Jesus, have mercy on me. Jesus, Save me. I'm a broken sinner. And you'll find that He will pour a gift into your heart like nothing you've ever known. Because He breaks infinite boundaries to show this kind of mercy. 
You see, when mercy overcomes my justifications, that's when I'll begin to show mercy to others. We can never be like this just by saying, go and be a better Samaritan. That's never the solution to doing it. It's always pausing and recognizing the Samaritan that came and rescued you from infinite chasms so that you can and I can be propelled to so much smaller ones and show a mercy that this world doesn't understand. So let me leave you with these very practical steps for this week. See, Sunday, as we talked about last week, is so you never forget the boundary-breaking infinite mercy you've received. That's what Sunday is for. But Monday is so that you can go and show the same kind of boundary-breaking mercy that you have received. So let me ask you this one question. When you leave here today, just like these priestly, this Levite left, and you walk out on your Monday... Who's on your path? Who's going to be laying there? Who's that person that you're going to be tempted to step around because the chasm seems too big? It may be someone in your workplace. Maybe a neighbor that's annoyed the heck out of you. It may be an ex-spouse that you have not wanted to talk to for so long and to have any sort of reconciliation in that would literally take a miracle. Isn't that what we're talking about here? Isn't this a miracle? I don't know who it is, but this isn't about family and friends and people that are easy. This is about people who are costly, people who are different than us in so many ways that the world would shake its head if it ever saw you or me showing them mercy. And here's what I want to challenge you with. Don't just do something to pretend you overcame the boundary. When you see that, when you come to that spot, pause for a moment and wrestle. Wrestle with your justifications as to why you don't want to show mercy. And everyone that comes up, I dare you, to beat it down with the mercy, the infinite mercy you've been shown in Jesus Christ. And see what happens on your Monday. Imagine, imagine a church that was filled with people that were excited to show this kind of mercy on Monday because they'd been overwhelmed with this kind of mercy on Sunday. Imagine what that would look like in our workplaces, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, if, if this kind of stuff was taking place, not to justify ourselves, but because we've been so freely justified. We have nothing to lose but to give ourselves away. I don't think we'd need a billboard I don't think we'd need social media. I don't think we would need any means of proclaiming our church and our community if this was taking place. People would be knocking down the doors to say, what is going on here? What is up with these people? 
Because whatever it is, I want to know who's in your path this week. Let's pray. Father, once again, when we open your word, you open us up. And Lord Jesus, you show us time and time again how gracious you are, how unbelievably selfless you were, how you set aside, you didn't cling to your right to your position, to the glory and the beauties and the comforts of heaven, when you deserve that, you laid them all aside. You gave yourself away. You didn't just give some pocket change. You didn't even give a week's or a month's worth of wages. You gave your whole life. infinite mercy so that we can be a people who show an uncanny finite mercy. Never will we give what you gave to us. But Lord, when we receive what you give us, it will change us to give ourselves away more and more for your glory, for our good, for the good of our city. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.